Well, good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, it is springtime. It is Palm Sunday. Uh, and we also have new uh, chairs, as you can hear them popping as they are adjusting to uh, just the, uh, the freshness of, of, I don't know, they're new chairs. Um, so anyway, uh, again, it is Palm Sunday. Um, I'm looking forward to celebrating this week with you. It is sort of a holy week as we lead up to Easter. Um, and so I, I'm excited about today, and I'm also excited about uh, celebrating Good Friday with you again, uh, 6.30 this Friday. Uh, um, I, I, it is uh, an important piece, and of course, uh, Easter is this coming Sunday, uh, and we're going to celebrate Christ's resurrection uh, also with a number of baptisms. So I'm excited about that. So after the second service, we're going to be holding baptisms out on the uh, back sort of boardwalk area in, in the, uh, I guess you could say, backyard of our venue. <laughs> um, and so we got a portable hot tub that we'll set up. No, we are not going to baptize people in the diesel fuel uh, out there. Uh, we're going to have a nice little hot tub. Um, and uh, I, I do want to remind you, though, that as we journey through this season, this sort of Easter holiday season, that there's a lot more going on than just religious rituals. These aren't just empty traditions. These are uh, very significant um, reminders. Like Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, they all have very deep significance. And so the reason that we celebrate Good Friday is to remind ourselves even why it's good. It's when Jesus was crucified, and that's really a good thing. That's sometimes hard to grasp because it feels very upside down. We're going to talk about that this morning and on Good Friday. It's to take in the revelation of his crucifixion because the truth is if you don't have a real revelation of his death and and, and even the reason why he died, then you're also not going to get a real revelation of his resurrection. And so today is, again, traditionally known as Palm Sunday. Notice the palm branches here, the little palm trees here. Um, and that actually marks the uh, beginning of Holy Week and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where uh, a week later, or less than a week later, he would be crucified, and then a week later he would be risen from the grave. Uh, and it's the beginning of his final week on the earth. And now the reason it's called Palm Sunday, though, is because as he entered Jerusalem, there were these crowds, huge crowds of people waving palm branches, and that, which symbolized, especially in that time, victory. And they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means Savior. And they're calling him the Son of David, which is extremely significant. See, Jerusalem was under Roman occupation at the time, and many of the Jews were awaiting the prophesied Messiah, their Savior, their King, who they believed would come and deliver them from their oppression under the Romans. That's how they were thinking of it, because they were occupied by Roman occupation. They felt like they were oppressed, because, they, well, they were. And what many saw as a corrupt government system, they were awaiting their King to deliver them from that system. Their hope was that the Messiah, or the Christ, which is the Greek word, would bring them victory and deliverance from their oppression and their oppressors. And then Jesus shows up. He shows up on the scene, and, and for three years, he's fulfilling all of these prophecies about the Messiah. And he's standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the corrupt establishment. And he's garnered this following of people that's huge. He's a miracle worker. He's even casting out demons. And rumor has it that he's recently even just raised a man from the dead. Even the way Jesus entered Jerusalem was a blatant declaration of confrontation to the established system. He was saying, I am the Messiah. Even the way he entered, humble and mounted on the cult of a donkey, was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Years before, Zechariah the prophet, in Zechariah 9.9, 9, it says this, Rejoice 
greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's significant. So instead of entering the city as a conquering hero on a war horse, he comes on a donkey, a baby donkey. But the significance of his humility was lost still on these crowds. Like they still expected him to wage war the way they wanted him to wage war. They, and, and he did wage war. But his war was not what the crowds had expected. Like Jerusalem at the time would have swelled into the millions of people for th- this celebration of the Passover feast. And we're even told that the entire city was stirred up at his arrival. And again, after all, the true king of kings, the savior of the Jews, the world, the Messiah, the Christ has arrived. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he enters to the victorious shouts and the waving of palm branches, again, which signified victory. And so Jesus receives it all. Like, he's not like, no, 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 you don't understand, be quiet. That's not what he does at all. In fact, that's what the religious people are telling everyone to do. And Jesus says, no, if they are quiet, I tell you, the rocks will cry out. You know why? He's the king. And everything that we're saying was true, even though they didn't quite understand it. Jesus was meek and he was mild, but nothing about him was weak. He was harnessed and he was intentional. Everything he did was completely under control and laser-focused. And this day, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was extremely confrontational. In fact, that way that he rode in forced a blatant declaration. It forced them to be confronted by the king who says to them, crown me or crucify me, but you cannot ignore me. Jesus came to save, but not the way they expected or even wanted. Jesus had a much deeper and eternally significant rescue mission in mind. The deliverance he would provide transcended their Roman context and enveloped all of history and even creation. He was the answer to the cry of creation itself that had been groaning. This is the answer that creation itself had been groaning for since the entrance of sin and the fall. But his salvation wasn't just for all that out there. It wasn't just for government systems and all this other stuff. It wasn't about necessarily just that stuff out there. It was for each individual in here. Jesus entered the city the day, that day, to set the captives free. Free from sin, free from death, free from evil itself, but he also came to set us free from ourselves. See, Christ sacrificed his life even when we didn't think we needed it. Even when the crowds didn't really understand the depth of how much they needed a Savior and how they needed a Savior, even when we wanted something else from him, he knew what we really needed. And that's how good God is. Like, he offers you what you need even when it's not what you want. And it requires trust because that's what good fathers do. Even when it hurts him, even when it costs him, that's why faith is characterized, like that's why the redeemed people of God are characterized by faith and trust. See, the story of Palm Sunday is about bringing deliverance to a people who don't realize they need it in a way that they never expected. And the reason they didn't expect it is because they were so detached from their actual deep-seated need. But to receive, receive that deliverance, it means coming to grips with your continual need for it. And that requires true soul level confession. Well, most people hear the word confession, they think about confessing to a crime or confession to sin, right? Confession of sin. And and, and that is, in fact, what confession is often about. That is a big part of confession, but that's not all. 
Like, confession is about acknowledging the truth you've been ignoring. Say that again. Confession is about acknowledging the truth that you've been ignoring. It's often associated with sin because that's the area in our lives that we tend to ignore the most. It's, it's like a coping mechanism because if we really came to grips with the weight of our own depravity, it'd be devastating. So we push it in the corner. We kind of ignore it. We compartmentalize it. We separate ourselves from it. We justify it by comparing ourselves to other people or, or just outright ignoring it altogether. But that's not how deliverance works. Jesus didn't come so that you could ignore it. He, he came to cover it. And I'm gonna, this is, it, true freedom comes through true confession. And true confession means come to grip with the reality of our own sin. But that's a lot easier said than done. And hear me, this isn't just about salvation. Guys, this is about sanctification and the maturation process of growing closer to Jesus every single day. This is not something you outgrow. Like that's why when most people, even most Christians, when they talk about sin, it's in the past tense. They'll say, I'm forgiven, which is true if you're in Christ, but Christianity is about way more than just escaping hell. And, and if you're unwilling to see the weight and impact of your past and your present sin, then you're likely going to keep on repeating it. After all, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like you're forgiven, right? And that's all that matters, Right? Or maybe it's such a big deal to you that the shame of it's just too much, so you detach. See, Psalm 51 isn't just about praying an initial prayer of salvation. It's also about continually receiving sanctification. Again, that means growth, healing, spiritual maturation in the Lord, higher up and deeper into his love and his grace and your own identity in him and what he's done for you and calls you up into. And that all begins, though, and continues with true confession on a soul level. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, now, most of the time people hear this kind of language and they think, again, it only applies to how you become a Christian. Like you confess sin, you repent, you believe in Christ, and all of that is true and necessary and beautiful and worth celebrating, but it's not the end, guys. It's just the beginning. The life of a true Christian is, again, a life of true confession. It's a life of constant growth and deliverance from the lies that continually try to grip our hearts and souls. And so this morning, we're going to continue through our series in the Psalms called Knowing and Enjoying God, and we've come to Psalm 51. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me um, and or take a look at the screen. And, and I want you to look at the first little piece there. There's a heading at the top of Psalm 51. And this is what that heading says. To the choir master. Often we read over this stuff, but it's really significant. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now that's significant. Okay, first of all, this is a song. It's written by David with a particular context at a particular time. In other words, if you're going to take in the full impact of this song, then you need to realize that it's set within a particular set of events. And so this morning, we're not just going to walk through this psalm. I want to take a journey through the scenes that surround this song. As a roadmap for the rest of our time, I've got four scenes that surround Psalm 51, um, and we're going to walk through these scenes uh, to help sort of journey through true confession, repentance, and belief, and ultimately into deliverance and restoration. And so the first scene is scene one, detached. Scene two, disillusioned. Scene three, true confession. Scene four, deliverance and restoration. And so here's what I want you to get if you get nothing else this morning. This is what I want you to get. True confession is about coming to grips with the truth you've been ignoring on a soul level. Okay? True confession is about coming to grips with the truth you've been ignoring on a soul level. Now, again, true confession always leads to true repentance, okay? And, and restoration in Christ. But too often we want to jump right to restoration and never really enter into the process. And so this song helps us enter in well, right? 
So let's dive in. Scene one, detached. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. This is the context that we were talking about. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, says this. In the spring of the year, like right now, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this was a war that God had called him to, but David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, I want you to remember who this is. This is David. This is, this is the giant slayer that killed Goliath. Like, this is the shepherd boy who became a shepherd king. Like, this is the author of most of these sweet psalms, these songs that we've been going through. He wrote most of them. He, he was the anticipated anointed king of Israel, the one that God made so many promises to. Like, this is the man who so often refused to compromise his integrity even when nobody was watching. That's this David. He was the warrior poet king. He was the one known as a man after God's own heart. And he has gone down even in history and biblical history as a man after God's own heart. But here he's not after God's heart. He's after his own pleasure. He's in a situation here. He's disengaged. He's disengaged from his mission. He's disengaged from his calling. He's disengaged from the heart of God. He's not engaged in the battle. He's on the couch. And that makes him an easy target. He's not on the front lines. He's on the rooftop, which in that day would be like scrolling through the internet alone at night. Because the king's roof was elevated, giving him a view of everybody else's roof. And apparently that's where women went to bathe during this time of the day. So this wasn't a mistake. This is intentional. Guys, there's a clear lesson here. I often hear people say, like, when the devil attacks, it means you're doing something right. You ever heard that before? Sure, that, that might be true, right? Like, that, that could be. Or it could be that you've just made yourself an easy target. But make no mistake, none of what David's about to do can be blamed on the devil. And see, David has lost sight of God's purpose for him and his mission and his life. He's grown idle, he's grown lazy, and guys, that's when you're most vulnerable. And so that's when you start looking for excitement and adventure and something that makes you feel alive because you're created for that stuff. And the enemy is really uh, happy to offer you a counterfeit. And so David's checked out from the greatest adventure of all, which is God's calling, his kingdom, his advancement. And in this fallen world, you don't just check out from God's purposes, you check in with your enemy's purpose. And so David's just strolling through the enemy's neighborhood here, okay? And then years later, David's own son would write this. David's son Solomon would write in Proverbs 6, verse 27 through 29, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That one, that one hits. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The very next chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 7, verse 6 through 9, he writes, For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice, and I've seen among the simple... I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He goes on, Proverbs 7, verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter 
or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, which has echoes of Psalm 91 in it. He does not know that it will cost him his life. So it says all at once, but the truth is, it didn't happen all at once. That's kind of the point here, because for three chapters, Proverbs has said, you're being an idiot. You're lacking sense. Get out of that neighborhood. Quit walking down that road. Recognize it. The truth is, it didn't happen always. That's never how it happens. It's always the culmination of a series of bad decisions that cause you to drift from the Lord. It's not one decision. It's, it, it, it's these small choices in our attitude and our desires and our actions. And no, this doesn't only apply to sexual sin. It applies to all of it. So David's strolling through the forbidden neighborhood here, and he inquires, who is that? 2 Samuel 11, again, verse 3, And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So God actually uses this man to respectfully bring some clarity to the situation. Like, this is actually a lifeline, guys. Like, it's an opportunity for him to snap out of it. Like, she's not some just random attractive girl to be objectified. This is somebody's daughter. You see it? This is somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife. This is a man who's trying to call David up and help snap him out of it. He's saying she's more than just an object of your pleasure to be taken She, in herself, has great value. Respect that. That's a great lifeline if you'll take it. But David ignores it. Verse verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, which means she's ready to get pregnant. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, Oops, I am pregnant. And so David sent word to Joab, his general, who was on the front lines where David should have been. And he says, send me Uriah the Hittite, which was Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which really meant go sleep with your wife. So everybody thinks that when she turns out to be pregnant, that it's your child and then I'll skate clean. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his own house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Like, you've been out on the front lines. Like, why, why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, which are like tents. And my lord Joab, his general, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. It's like I, this is a noble gesture of respect. Like Uriah is the picture of nobility here. He's not interested in lounging. His head and heart are engaged in battle, even though he's been called back from the front lines for a reason he doesn't quite understand. And so verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him, and and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Like, maybe if I can get him drunk, he'll shake, shake off some of that nobility, right? And then in the evening, he went out to lie on the, his couch with the servants of the Lord, or, or of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Again, he knew Uriah was noble. He knew he was loyal. So loyal, he wouldn't even open up the letter and read it. And so, he, he, this is also an interesting fact. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Like, that meant that he was a a top-tier, like, most lethal warrior and loyal warriors in Israel. Most loyal to David. He was top-tier guy, and that makes what David is doing here all the the more 
really horrible. I want you to get this. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men, uh, the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. I'll look at, skip down, verse 26 here. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So Uriah's dead. And David looks like the hero here who swoops in to save the day. It would have even looked like the baby was conceived on their honeymoon. And it was his. Or on their wedding night. And so I want you to think about this. Think about taking the dissonance in David's soul here. Look, he's not a sociopath. How could he cope with this? How could he cope with this situation? Like, it started with one small decision to check out from his primary purpose, and then another bad decision to start trolling the rooftops, and then one bad decision follows another, and then maybe he thinks, okay, just forget it all. From then on, maybe he would have had to operate, right? Detached. Think about the detachment. On a subconscious level, how hard his heart would have had to become, how his soul and his own past would just be, just put it away and put anyone who knows about it away like Uriah, or any remembrance of my sin, cut them out and cut them off, cope and detach. Meanwhile, again, the detachment and dissonance between David and his own soul and with God would have just continued to just fester under the surface until one day, just under a year later, the baby's been born, right? And so by God's mercy, and, and I want you to hear this, this is God's mercy. What I'm about to read here is God's mercy on David. David is confronted and his delusion is exposed. Scene two, disillusioned. Second Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and, he, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger, he hears this story, and David's anger is greatly kindled against the man in that story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David has so detached from his own soul and his own sin here that he doesn't even realize that this story is about him. He, he can't see it. His coping mechanism and his masks that he's, been, that he's put on have blinded him. He, he's believed his own lie, and so through the mask of his own making, he proclaims a death sentence over himself guys these things are sneaky like it doesn't happen all at once again this slope is slippery so, so one, the question is are, are you allowing yourself to disconnect from your own choices for the sake of not dealing with your own soul like masks allow you to go through the motions while not dealing with what's really going on and hear me you have an enemy who wants you to wear a mask. Oftentimes we think about wearing masks in front of other people, but your enemy wants you to wear a mask in front of yourself, in front of your own mirror. So you don't experience wholeness. 
There's a dissonance there. There's a distance and an insecurity. David is trapped behind the iron mask of his own making, but God loves him too much to leave him there. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So now David has an opportunity here. Like, don't just think this is him getting in trouble. I want you to hear this. Remember, this is God's mercy on him. Like, this is God drawing near even to reveal truth to a man he loves. And David has a choice. Like, he can continue hiding here. Like, he could easily say, like, I I don't know what you're talking about. Or he could continue to play the hero, right? He could play the hero of his own story or even the victim of his own story. And that's actually what most people do in these situations. That's really what he has done up until this point. Or he can receive God's lifeline and confess. Like verse 13, look at this. Look what he does. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, it probably doesn't feel like it in the moment, but the truth is, right here, this is closer to God than David has been since this whole thing started. Like, this would have been both devastating and liberating for David. Devastating to his flesh, but devastating to his iron mask and all his posturing and his pretense, but liberating to his soul that's finally able to come out of captivity. And there, there's the the. This here is the first true confession, like this state of disillusionment of the soul where David's radically confronted by his own sin and has now drawn him closer to the Lord, not farther away. Look with me at Psalm 51 here. Let's roll through this. This is the song David writes as he comes to grips with the reality of his own sinfulness. Scene three, true confession. Again, the heading, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to, into Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So no self-justification, no excuses, no more ignoring. Like this is confession. He's coming to grips with the weight of it all. No pretense or posturing, just reality. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so if this sin is against God, then God is the one who's blameless in his judgments. Now, the point here, though, is not to downplay David's sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. Like, David's sin against them was real, and it was horrible, and it created this chasm between David and God. But the point that he's emphasizing here is what most people overlook when it comes to confession, especially in a world that tries to take God out of restoring relationships. And yet it's the most important aspect of confession, and that is that it's Godward. Ultimately, this is Godward. It's about how our sin affects him, not just the people around us. It's ultimately about how our, effect, how our sin affects 
him. Like we live in a world that tries to take God out of everything, and yet the truth is that all sin, all injustice, all wickedness is ultimately aimed at God. All sin is first and foremost against him, and that's why it demands such a heavy price. That's why there's no such thing as a small, insignificant sin. Like, if it's all against the eternal and holy God, then it must come with eternal consequence. So David's not just saying here that he he doesn't care about how he's hurt others. He's recognizing that his actions against them have even worse implications towards the God who loves them. But that confession allows us then to come to grips with what's in our own souls, in our own hearts, like which is the first step in aligning our hearts with God's heart. Like this is what repentance is actually all about. Like this is what relationship is about. Like it's not just about rules. God's saying, hey, see how cold you are in this area. I'm going to tear this thing down. See, he's saying, I want you to see how cold you are in this area. Like come see things from my perspective. And I'll catch my heart for this person or this situation or circumstance. Take your eyes off yourself and place them on him, on the Lord. Like repentance means, again, turning away from sin and beholding the Lord. And you need to realize that you you can, in fact, grieve God. As a Christian, your sin, your coldness, your detachment and disconnection grieves him. And yes, Christians can and often live this way. And it's not necessarily about salvation. Detached and cold towards God and each other, this is not how God desires for us to live. And that makes sense, though, that that tends to be our coping mechanism because it's natural for our sin and our sin nature to lean that way. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin did my mother conceive me. So that's the natural state of our sin nature. But hear this. God desires to replace that insecure heart of stone with a new heart in the spirit. Cleansed by grace and made new in Christ. And it's done from the inside out. Look at verse 6. Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is deep soul awareness, not just rules or religious metrics or human expectations. This is about relationship and the heart of God. This isn't just about appearances. This is about inward transformation. But it's, listen, it's easier to externalize this. Like it's easier to detach and even set up barriers that keep God and people away. Like even now, I'd be willing to bet that many of you are thinking about how all this applies to somebody else other than yourself right? Like, you're like, man, I hope my spouse is taking notes right now. But that's a detachment tactic. You see it? Like, it's why David couldn't connect the dots that Nathan was talking about him until he had to spell it out for him. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, verse 3 through 5. Jesus said, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and hypocrite means actor. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And notice David surrounds himself with people whose voice held no weight in his life. His general, Joab, he knew what David had done, the, the man he asked about Bathsheba, where he's like, he inquires of her, like that guy, he knew what David had done. The men he sent to go get her, they knew what he had done. But David gave their words no real authority in his life. It took God's prophet, Nathan, to get to David almost a year later. But God's not after David's condemnation here. You need to hear this. He's after his wholeness. He's after his restoration. He's after his heart. He's after his inner man. He's not after our moral perfection. He's after our wholeness and our restoration from the inside 
out truth in the inward being and wisdom in the secret heart. The rest is just the overflow. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now listen to this. this is, hyssop was actually a flower that represented purity. It was used in the Passover to paint the blood of the sacrificial lamb over the doorposts of the Jewish homes that protected them from the Passover uh, as he passed over their homes. And, the, and uh, it, when God saw the blood, he would pass over their homes as a, it was a sign of protection. They were hiding under the blood. We've talked about this for the past few weeks, but it's also in Leviticus 14. Like we see hyssop is used in Leviticus 14 as a way to cleanse a leper. Like the priest would take the hyssop flower, dip it in the blood of a sacrificial lamb, and then sprinkle it seven times on the diseased skin of a leper. Now follow this. Like David is saying here, I've got leprosy of the heart. He's saying it's black and it's rotten and it's desensitized and it's numb to the things that you love and the things of you, God. Like pieces of it are falling off like rotten flesh and I've barely even noticed. That's what leprosy does. Like fingers and noses and stuff, they fall off because they've gone numb. You can't even feel it. They're like shutting their hands in the door and they're like, oh, oops, lost a finger. And they don't even realize it. And so David's saying, I've got leprosy of the heart here. And so when you're not willing to take stock of why you make the choices you make, then you're not really willing to let God bring renewal to your heart through his spirit from the inside out. Like this is why people often find themselves going round and round the same mountain of issues. It's why those same issues seem to be continually gripping you or following you. Like whether it's pornography addictions or lying or gossiping or relational issues with family and friends, whether it's credit card debt, the list goes on and on and on. And often we tend to run from it or, or try to cope and even use Jesus as an excuse to not deal with it. Like we'll say, well, yeah, I'm covered under the blood. That's not a thing anymore. And yet it continues to be a thing. Why? Maybe you say, yeah, I'm forgiven, which may be true. You, you may be saying, God, I don't want that. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm tired of it. But the answer isn't to just ignore it. In fact, being covered in the blood, being in the secure grace of your Savior is the very means by which you're able to come to grips with the issue rather than just running from it because it's too difficult to deal with. And yet Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. Letting him in is the only way true wholeness and restoration continues to take place. But it starts with true confession. It starts by even realizing that you've got your foot propped against that door or in that area of your life and you're pretending everything's fine. Just trying to console that ache inside while keeping him outside. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. You, anybody want to hear some joy and gladness right now? This thing's heavy, isn't it? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken Rejoice. Again, this is a physical picture of an inward brokenness. It's not much physically deeper than your bones, maybe the bone marrow, right? <laughs> There's a common illustration connected to shepherds and, and, and wayward sheep here about how some lambs would keep wandering away from their shepherd into dangerous places, and then there are places where they could be devoured by wolves or lost, and so the shepherd would actually go and break bones in their legs to keep them from wandering, and instead, they would carry them around on the shepherd's shoulder while the shepherd nurses and nurtures them back to health. And then in the process, the lamb develops such a strong bond with the shepherd that once he's restored, the lamb never leaves the shepherd's side because he's like, all that I needed, all of the joy that I could ever imagine is actually with the shepherd. The reason he doesn't stray is not because he's afraid he's going to get his bones broken again, but because the lamb has experienced the joy of knowing the shepherd. And he's got no desire to roam anymore. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, restore to me the joy 
of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Like he's recognizing, he's confessing his tendency to roam and his lack of desire. He's saying, my heart is jacked up. It roams, it wanders, it's unwilling, it's out of alignment. I need soul-level renewal. And, and when he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, like that word for clean here, like that, that word create is actually a deep word of like creation, new creation. Cleaning is, a, is also a term that's used to describe how priests would clean and prepare vessels and set them apart to be used in sacred ceremonies in the temple. So that's, that's what David's asking God to do, even in his own heart, to clean it from the inside out, renew him in the depths of his own soul and spirit, to not give him what he deserves, but to change even his affections and his desires. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to, to you. Not because he's so much better, but because he understands and knows that redemption and restoration is possible. Like, I'm not up here telling you, hey, look how awesome I am. You should be awesome like me. I'm saying, no, look how awesome he is, and I'm going to tell you he has done these things for me. Let's seek him together. And notice, like, there's so much. He's ministering here from a place of his own weakness. No more hiding. David writes this song to be sung by all of Israel, and they all knew what it was about. Like, you know what he's teaching other transgressors and sinners? He's saying, he's showing us God's ways, his unrelenting, never-ending, unconditionally loving and gracious ways. And I want you to think about it. Like, this song has been sung by God's people for thousands of years. Like, talk about removing the masks of perfection. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. See, this is the true nature of our deliverance. This is what Jesus came to deliver us from, which is blood guiltiness. Not just government oppression or, or temporary injustice issues. Like the real issue is blood guiltiness that rests deep in the individual soul of humanity. It's our sin which deserves condemnation. We live in a wicked world because it's what we deserve. But hear me, that's not a reason to just wallow in it. Like, if Jesus has set you free, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. And it's for freedom that he has set you free. Let me say that again. It's for freedom that he has set you free. Not for condemnation and wallowing in shame. That's not what this is about. It's not to wallow in your condemnation. In fact, to wallow in your own condemnation and shame is to reject the all-sufficient love and grace of your Savior. That's actually a double insult to the Lord who has set you free. And so it's rooted, that actually is rooted in your own lack of self-righteousness. Like, like when we do that stuff, it's because we're so sick of the fact that we aren't righteous in ourselves. That's why we're wallowing in shame. It's just the other side of the, the, other side of the same coin of pride. And so basically, this is what the gospel says. Get over it. Like, you have no righteousness in yourself. But he has provided all we could ever need in Christ. He offers you the very righteousness of Christ, but to receive it means coming to grips with the reality that you need it. And you'll never outgrow that need. And so when sin crops up in your life, truly engaging it and recognizing the weight of it, and also that that means you have some confessing and repenting to do. And he loves you. Yes, like take in the weight of your sin. Confess it, but don't make it your address. Confess also the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Confess your identity as his son or his daughter. Confess the joy of his resurrection and praise him for it. Verse 15. Oh Lord, 
Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Like, you don't need me to do penance. You don't need me to give a certain amount of money. Or, or, or like, you don't need to do things in order to try and offset your sin in order to feel like you deserve God. Like, that's what religious people do who miss the point entirely. That's what the self-righteous do to make themselves feel better about themselves, to reinflate their ego, which is the problem in the first place. Like, Satan would love nothing more than you, for you to feel like you're entitled to God's love and favor because of something you've done. But this isn't about what you're owed. It's about what he's offered in spite of what we deserve. That's love. And that's grace. But again, when we're faced with the depth of our own sin, we tend to want to jump right to restoration without examining why and how we got to where that place in the first place. But it's in his arms of forgiveness and grace that we're actually able, again, to enter with, enter in with his spirit to even view the landscape of our own hearts. Like to see the pain of why we make the choices we make. This is a major part of true confession and true deliverance. And so when we do, it's not just a reminder of how bad we've been or what we deserve. It's the reminder of how much we've been forgiven of and how much Jesus willingly endured on the cross for us in our place because of how much he loves us. So now, now, we can see why Good Friday is so good. Like now, we can see what those palm leaves of victory actually represent. No masks, no delusions, no excuses, no coping mechanisms, not putting it out there, letting it come in here. Just Jesus, just grace. It's about taking in the reality of our own sin, but even more standing in the breadth of God's love and his grace and his victory over all of this mess. We often think of trials as something that we face out there, but the real trial is the one that goes on in here. This is where true deliverance happens. It's got nothing to do with politicians and earthly rulers. It's not about who's on the throne of the earthly kingdoms. It's got everything to do with who's on the throne of your heart. God doesn't just dismiss our sin. He paid for it. He doesn't just ignore it. He endured it. And, and the more that you take in the weight of what he endured, the more you embrace your own culpability for his condemnation. And the more you do that, the more your soul will actually sing in praise and joy, not despair that feels upside down but the only reason that you would despair of that is because you don't understand what's actually happening there's a scene in luke 7 where jesus is in the house of a pharisee and a known prostitute comes and and falls at christ's feet and begins to wash his feet with her tears and her hair and luke 7 verse 39 through 47 it says this now when the pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The truth is, that Pharisee had a lot to be forgiven. He just didn't realize it. Her scandalous expression actually reminds me a lot of how David would have been pouring his heart out unto the Lord here in Psalm 51. Verse 17, last three verses here. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now don't, don't overlook this. A broken and contrite heart, God does not despise. But you know what he does despise? You know what is actually listed as an abomination to him? Arrogance. Haughty eyes. Self-righteousness. You know who he doesn't work with? Those unwilling to lay their brokenness at the feet of Jesus. But no matter how bad, hear me, no matter how bad you think whatever it is that's going on there in there is, his arms are open wide and his grace is more than sufficient. He will turn your mourning into dancing and give beauty for ashes. This is the king of glory. This is grace. And this is true security and true confidence. And this is true joy. Final scene. Deliverance and restoration. Back to 2 Samuel 12. Look at verse 13 again. So right after Nathan has confronted David, it says this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, right? And then Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. I don't think he saw that one coming. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. Now pay attention here. I know we're at the end. Do not miss this. There is a beautiful picture of ultimate deliverance and restoration in Christ here. It's blatant. So lean in. David goes into full grief mode at this point. He fasts, he prays, he, he lays on the ground all night and all day. The elders of his house, they are deeply concerned. They think he's going to hurt himself. And he's, they, 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 he's pouring his heart out in repentance and pleading for God to spare his son. But God doesn't do it. And the son of David dies for his sin. The son of David took the penalty he deserved. But when David heard that his son had died, instead of falling into complete despair, he arose. He, he ate and he drank and he, he washed and he took his place on the throne. It even confused the people that were around him. They thought he was going to kill himself when he heard the news. But instead, he gets up. He arises. Now, I want you to remember, David has gone down in history as a man after God's own heart. But how? Why? He was an adulterer and a murderer. How could he be a man after God's own heart? This is how. I think this final scene captures it. David understood and stood upon grace. Remember, I opened the sermon with Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, shouting, Savior, Hosanna, to the son of David. They called him the son of David. The reason that was a dangerous phrase is because God promised David that his son would rule and reign on an everlasting throne and be basically the hope and savior of the world. That promised Messiah would be a son of David. And here in 2 Samuel 12, we've got a prophetic picture of how the son of David would die for the sins even of David. David understands it. He weeps, he mourns, he confesses. But when the son of David died, he also recognized it is finished. No more excuses, no more delusions, no more coping mechanisms. The debt's been paid and God is good. David even says he'll see him again one day when you read this passage. It's all a picture of what the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, would finish for us all at the cross. This is the gospel that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die and he conquered sin and the, de and, and the grave he conquered death and evil itself, and he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but the moment we place our faith and our hope in what Christ has done for us, what the son of David has done on our behalf. And he fills us with his spirit, and he changes us from the inside out. But that process begins at that point, but it's, 
It's continual. Now look at verse 24. Final verse. Then David, and, and back to, uh, yeah, 2 Samuel. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. This is so good. And he went in to lay with her. And she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Guys, Solomon would not only grow up to become the next great king of Israel, it would also be through the line of Solomon that Jesus Christ would be born. Like, that is a marriage redemption story, don't you think? I mean, that's some jacked up dysfunction in that house. And God used it, and he redeemed it, and he brought forth from it the Savior of the world. Like, this is our God. Like, that's a message of God's glory in our redemption. But it all begins with true, humble confession. It's about coming to grips with the truth you've been ignoring on a soul level and allowing it to bring you to a place of repentance and belief. You see, this is the biggest danger of all here, though, is that you confess but never repent. And you know how you know whether you've only confessed and not repented? There's no joy. That's where you just wallow in condemnation and you continue to detach. But repentance beholds his goodness and it connects, it reconnects, and it allows him to restore. This is the goodness and glory of our God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.